It's good to be with you this morning and uh, able to share on the next stage of our Romans series, Hope for a Culture in Crisis. Um, I'm John Gross. If you're a visitor here, you might not know because I come and go a bit. I often serve other churches, but I'm part of the leadership team here. It's wonderful to be here and preaching. It's my Uh, joy to preach in my home church and uh, I love the book of Romans that we're going to be looking at and um, I'm particularly um, pleased in a way that we're going through it uh, steadily. I'm not sure we're doing a Martin Lloyd-Jones and I wouldn't want us to where we do every verse for about three weeks but but I think it's good to go right through a book and not just hop around in the Bible with the bits that you like and you can stick on your fridge and in your you know, journal notebook with flowers around it and doves and things, which, which we all do, of course. But I, with this passage this morning is not one that you'll do that with, okay? So this is a slightly more challenging passage. Uh, you had one last week, which Steve handled very well. I listened online to it. But this is slightly different, but it, it continues to be more meaty, shall we say, than perhaps, as I say, the ones we just like to have in our promise boxes. So let's read Romans chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the subject, facing the consequences. And we're going to start at verse 1, reading the first 16 verses of Romans chapter 2. I think it'll go up on the screen behind me. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed... God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favouritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, their law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. This will all take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Right, we're going to get to work. Roll your sleeves up, don't need to, it's the summer. 
This requires us to think a little bit, this passage. As I say, it's, a, it's quite a, a tricky one, but it's a very important one. And to understand it, we need to look at the bigger picture, which you should always do, really, when you're trying to really dig into a passage. The bigger picture in Romans, where this passage fits in Romans, where it fits in the flow of what Paul's saying. Because many of us in this room, and I don't mean people who are just new to Christian things are looking in, but some of us have been around for years, may well have already had a question or two if you followed the reading. You thought, after, what's it mean when you know, you, you, it looks like you're being judged on your works, but it looks like you're getting rewarded for doing good. I thought you were saved by faith alone in Jesus. I thought about the grace of God. What exactly is Paul saying here? So let's take the time to think about its context. The first thing to say is that this passage fits into a flow of argument that Paul is engaged in. And the bit we've read this morning is not really about salvation, it's about condemnation. It's not really about how you get saved, it's about why you need to be saved, all of us. So this passage, this little bit is more about why we all need saving rather than the mechanism of how we get saved. In fact, it's about God's righteous judgment against sin, as you can see from the title in your Bible. In fact, Paul is going to move on in what we call chapter 3, because as you know, the chapters weren't there originally. He's going to move on to explain that we all need saving. So we won't even turn to it, but Romans 3 verses 9 and 10 will be saying, no one is righteous. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Everyone is under the power of sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. And then it will move to a more climactic part of Romans 3, which obviously someone else will look at another time. But let's just read these verses because it's where we're going, or where Paul's going with his writing. 3, 22 to 24 say this. This righteousness, the righteousness he's talking about is what God gives people. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. So Paul's headed towards what many of us will recognize as the magnificent truths of God the gospel, saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But it is important to look at this passage. It's very important. That's why I love to go through a thing systematically because we need to really get why Jesus needed to die, why we need to be saved. I'd like to say something else just in this context bit before we start. In the originals, I've already said, in the Greek manuscript, you wouldn't have had chapters and you wouldn't have had verses. They're very useful for us and they help us when we want to understand the Bible and look at bits. But there's a little downside, which is actually sometimes a problem, that we tend to chop the Bible up into little bits and we tend to think like a chapter break, like two with a, a heavy type title, God's Righteous Judgment, makes a big gap and that's not illogical. But actually in the original, it doesn't, it flows on. And so this is quite important to realise What's in chapter 1, uh, around verses 18 to 32, which we looked at last week a little bit, is that Paul has written some pretty heavy stuff about the awful consequences of 
the general culture around who have rejected God. And in rejecting God and even hating God, they have drifted or helter-skelter hurried into a decline of sin and godlessness in the culture. And Paul gives a stark analysis of the culture of first century Rome here in that chapter one. But actually, as we know only too well, it's also a very telling analysis, a very telling one of 21st century Britain. And it shows how, I, how atheism and God-hating and God-rejecting could quickly turn to idolatry, to any other God. You worship anything if you don't worship the true living God. Then it, there's lusts and sexual impurity and sexual depravity become open and proud. People are proud of their sin. There's greed, there's envy, there's violence, deceit, strife, malice. The list goes on. Slander, rebelliousness. There's a lack of fidelity or tr- faithfulness. There's a lack of mercy, a lack of love. And it is a devastating analysis of what happens to a culture that loses its way, to a people or individuals even, as they turn their back on God. Now, having written that, Paul now turns his attention instantly, moves on to a slightly different audience, one that was nearer to home for the readers of the first century who got this letter, and is actually, brothers and sisters, nearer to home to us and maybe to many of our citizens around us in Winchester. You see, what Paul had already said, and you saw it last week, and you can glance at it again if you want to, it is devastating analysis of, of, of the decadence of Roman culture that a lot of people who would have gone, yes, we agree, preach it, Paul, amen, that's true, you lay it on the line, you say what a stinking mess it is. Now, some of us would react like that as well when we read it. Uh, perhaps like, yeah, it's good, the Bible doesn't pull any punches. That's right. But in verse 1 of what we've called chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 1, Paul, as it were, turns round and talks to an imaginary person. And you need to understand, this is a means of writing. The official name is a diatribe. A diatribe is where you set up an imaginary person and you answer their questions. It's a way of writing in the first century. And he has a dialogue with this imaginary opponent. And it's like as though Paul is speaking pretty straight to this person. And he's giving some penetrating analysis of their life. He's giving them some very searching questions. He's rebuking their inconsistencies and their presuppositions. And although this conversation partner is imaginary, it is actually very, he is, this imaginary person, very close to the sort of people who Paul had dealings with often in the culture around and in the church, really, and particularly probably in the synagogues. In fact, it's a sort of person who we might say would well be sitting in a church here in Winchester today, or might well be one of our neighbours around us in Winchester. What sort of person is this imaginary person that Paul is now turning his sights on and addressing in this part we've read? Well, it is basically a moral, living, religious, probably self-righteous person who feels very smug as they've looked at the list in chapter one and feels, yeah, that is the state of things, it's awful. And Paul is sort of turning around and saying, I've got something to say to you as well. 
And that's what's coming up in what we've read. Now, Paul is probably thinking of Jews because by the time he gets to verse 17, that's very specifically said. They are moral living, they're very religious, they're law-keeping, and they're very proud of that and proud of being God's special people. Paul knew all about that because he was exactly like that before he got saved. He was very proud of his effective, uh, very disciplined religious life, following all the law, and he was uh, arrogant, actually. He was probably an extreme example, and he was very critical of those outside of Judaism. But most commentators say, and I think I agree, because I think that is the sense of this context, this is not merely Jews. They are an example of this sort of person, but not the only example. Undoubtedly, in Rome and in the Roman church, just like in Winchester and in even Winchester's churches, and this church perhaps, there are people who are quite moral living, who are not Jews, they're Gentiles, in this case Greeks and Romans, us, whatever we are, people who are sort of quite righteous in their life, quite upstanding citizens, who uh, don't dabble in the sort of extremes that have been already laid out. They have a keen sense of right and wrong, they probably consider themselves better than the average around and uh, they have been quite happy with what Paul said so far and these people think they are acceptable to God because they are good living clean citizens in one way or another they are good in comparison to many of the excesses around they don't do drugs they are moral and clean living they don't uh, get into all the extremes that have been uh, of sexual depravity that have been laid out there. They, they think, well, we're okay, so God is going to be happy with us and uh, we're acceptable because of our good behaviour. And the powerful point Paul is going to make, he's building his case, is that we are all sinners, all of us, every last one of us. And when we stand before a righteous, holy God, it will be very obvious that we fall far short of what we should be, even the best of us. And in a sense, we are all without excuse. So he's bringing the point home. Hang on a minute. Jesus didn't just die for all that lot out there, the extreme versions of sin. There's not much difference. Maybe practice goes a bit excessive, but actually in your hearts and in your lives, you also are sinners and you need the saving work of Jesus. That's true of every one of us. None of us will be saved by our good works. In verse 16, Paul very interestingly calls this my gospel. You might have noticed that. You can glance at it again if you want to. He says, this is my gospel. And in other places, Paul talks about our gospel several times in the New Testament. He, he loves these possessive pronouns. He, he loves the gospel. He, he sees it as his own. It's what, what he lives for. It's the good news of Jesus. It's what he believes in. It's what he's always wanting to talk about and proclaim. Do you know, I find that resonates. I hope it resonates with you. When we understand the gospel, you, you own it. You say, this is my gospel. <laughs> he doesn't mean it's only mine. He's not saying my excuse, nobody else preaches this. That's not what he means. As I say, he uses the word our, that possessive pronoun quite more often actually. But that's the point is it's, there's a personal ownership. This is the good news. When you get what we're talking about, in these, you realise we hold, we who follow Jesus, we hold the only really good news there is. My good news is the only good news. 
I mean that personally. Like Paul, my, the good news I've got hold of, not because I'm clever, but by the grace of God, this is the good news because all other good news isn't really because it doesn't fundamentally address the fundamental problem in the human heart, which the gospel does. And that's the sort of power of what he's saying. Now, this gospel that we believe and follow has two big aspects to it that are inseparably linked together. And to some extent, we're majoring on a more unusual aspect slightly today. The two biggest aspects that are inseparably linked are this. The wrath of a holy God against sin. God is angry at sin. He doesn't like it and he judges it. A holy God judges sin. As truly as light and darkness do not coexist, God's holy radiant presence will never coexist with sin. That's one aspect. The other aspect is that there is a righteousness from God that is available for all provided through Jesus Christ who bore your sin and mine on the cross and has given to us his righteousness. And the two are linked together. And if you don't understand how lost you are, you don't realize how much you need saving. That's our fundamental problem often today. Because we, even in church, in Christians, we so major, because we've got it perhaps, praise God, on all the, the positive side of what we have in Christ. That's good. But you need to always remember you had no hope apart from Jesus. Every last one of you if you were judged on your works alone, would be lost, would be under the wrath of God, including me, my salvation comes through Jesus alone. Amen? And that is a fundamental, these two link together, the wrath of God against sin and a righteousness of God provided through Jesus. So judgment, God's judgment, is a part of our gospel. It's part of my gospel to tell you this, Paul says. Now, to briefly, because it will be brief, don't worry, to briefly just look at what is here about the judgment of God, I'm thankful for three points which I pinched from John Stott. He's dead and in heaven getting his reward, so I don't have to pay copyright or anything. <laughs> so I just felt he put it very, very succinctly. But I believe the Holy Spirit, one of his works is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. That is in John's gospel. Jesus said it, 16 verse 8. So it is a work of the Holy Spirit to make us aware of sin, righteousness and judgment. So I look for his help over the next 15 minutes just to say, 15 or 20 minutes before I go, I just want you to understand the nature of God's judgment. Now, the effect of this, I hope, by the Holy Spirit, is to either make you nervous and uncomfortable and come to Jesus as a result, or to make you almost as nervous, but just full of gratitude that you've already come to Jesus. And let me say to you that nobody need leave this room still under the judgment of God, because Jesus has provided an answer. Let's be quick. There are three things that John Stott says about God's judgment are that God's judgment is inescapable, God's judgment is righteous, God's judgment is impartial. Quickly. So the first one, God's judgment is inescapable. God will judge 
all men and women, everyone. In verse 6, it says, each person, each person. You say, well, there's a lot of us. Yep, God's big enough for that. If he can make the universe, he can make the universe as we know it. God is big enough to know each one and to judge each one, and he will. The judgment of God will be personal and universal. Personal and universal. And here in chapter 2, as I've said, Paul is homing in on those who think they're quite good and self-righteous, really, that they think they live a good life and that's good enough. And he's just bringing home to them, no, 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 you need to be ready for the judgment of God. You're under a false sense of security. You're deluding yourselves. Actually, you think because you don't do the worst things, you're okay, you're not okay. I might remind you, Paul might have reminded you, he doesn't say it here, that Jesus was very clear. Jesus was very clear. We saw it in the Sermon on the Mount. That sins of the heart are are just as serious before God. You know, to, to be lusting in here, to be hating in here is as bad as adultery and murder and so on and so forth. It's God says, I see your hearts. I know about you. I I know all about you. People's secrets are not secrets to God. That's verse 16. We read it this morning. People's secrets are not secrets. God not only will judge each person, he knows all about each person. Wow. It's quite sobering stuff. And in fact, the list of sins in chapter 1, we can focus on the... fairly colourful ones about idolatry and sexual sin. But actually, there's another list which is a little more challenging, perhaps, for everyone. The sins of greed, envy, strife, deceit, gossip, slander, arrogance, disobeying parents, showing no mercy, showing no love, showing no fidelity. And I think when you really look at that list, there's not many of us that would claim a clean sheet. I certainly can't. You might, it's like when Jesus spoke, you might say, well, I've never committed adultery. Well, have you not lusted? What else have you done? Or I've never murdered anyone. What about hatred? So it's a bit similar. You look at this and you realize there's an analysis going on that we are all sinners. None of us deserve God's goodness. You see, in verses, uh, is it four and five, Paul addresses a sort of subsection of this state of mind of the person he's addressing where they say, well, look, I have quite a good life. Things go well for me. That's true for most of us here in Winchester. So I think God's quite happy with me. God's clearly rewarding me for being a good boy. So I get quite a nice life, and that means God's happy with me. And Paul says, oh, please don't misinterpret the kindness, patience, and mercy of God. This is very important. Don't misinterpret it or misunderstand it. God is gracious. God is patient. But he does care how you behave. You see, some people say, well, God probably doesn't care. He's not that fussy about sin. Look, he he didn't strike me down. I've had people say to me, well, I haven't been struck struck down yet. I've had people say that when you talk about, say, well, I haven't been struck down yet. I wouldn't get jokey about that. God is patient and kind, but one day you will be judged. And his patience and kindness is for you to have an opportunity to avoid being struck down, in inverted commas, to avoid being under the wrath of God. It's so that you might come to repentance. 
We should not abuse God's patience and kindness, Paul says, but we all need to come repentant. In fact, a sort of complacent interpretation that I'm pretty good because I have a good life is another form of sin. It's an arrogant rebelliousness against God. It's worth just saying something. You know, God sets the rules. God decides what sin is. Now, he made us. We all belong to him. We're all answerable to him. And sin is not just avoiding bad actions and words. Hear this carefully. It is not doing good actions and words. Sins of omission, I think they're called. But these are huge Sin is not like, well, I don't murder anyone. I don't commit some of those debauched acts in chapter one, so I'm quite good. No, what good things don't you do? Like love the Lord your God with all your might and all that. Like love your neighbor as yourself. Like, you know, and on and on and on. Things that we saw a little bit uh, in the Seven on Mount. No, not doing the good stuff is sin as well as doing, uh, uh, as well as, you know, avoiding wrong things. Uh, we need to get this clear in our heads. I think even as Christians, we're very light about this. I, I speak for myself. We, we think, well, I've avoided this and that excess in my life, and even I'm now battling, and I'm, I'm sort of getting control of this thing. That's wonderful. But what about the good we're doing? Are we on the front foot, or are we still a bit short on things like showing love and mercy and fidelity and truth and all these things? Our, whatever, wherever state we're in, our journey back to God always starts with repentance. This is true if you're not yet a Christian, but it's also true for those of us as believers who aren't doing well. And I go through times like that. Your journey back to God really properly starts when you get repentance. That is, you turn from your self-centered, self-seeking ways of carrying on and you turn back to God that's what repentance is it's turning and saying God it it's you I need to have dealings with it's you I can remember as a very young Christian struggling with like um you know I didn't feel I was that bad to be honest in fact I was a bit sad I hadn't been worse because I'd I'd missed the opportunity to do the excesses that my friends had done and I, I remember battling with this and I remember God really speaking to me in a, in a worship meeting once, saying, do you realize I really hate your pride? To me, your pride is as offensive as what you're thinking about. And, and I mean, he didn't use those words, but boy, it hit me right in my gut. I realized, actually, my pride is a problem. Do you see what I'm saying? I think sometimes we just don't, we need to get it. God says, uh, look, in your flesh dwells no good thing. <laughs> Let me come in and change you and fill you with my spirit. And we maybe begin to get somewhere. He, right, let's move on quickly. I said we'd try and be quick. God's judgment is righteous. So it, it's, it, it's uh, you, inescapable, applies to all of us. It's righteous. What does that mean? It means right. That means, it says somewhere else, I think it's in a revelation, just and true are all God's judgments. I know it's in revelation. It's just and true. So God's judgments are right. They are just and true. We're told in the Bible that when we stand before our holy God, and we all will remember, in God's judgment, every mouth will be stopped. 
I mean, people, people have said to me, I'm sure they've said to you, perhaps you've said it, I've probably nearly said it. I'd like to have a word with God when I get there. I shall ask him, why this, why that? The Bible says you won't. No one will. No one will. Surely we will. You won't. Every mouth will be stopped when you stand before a holy, righteous God. In fact, what does come out, and it is from Revelation, is that the testimony of heaven is just and true are all your ways. Now, that's quite challenging in itself. And now we get into, dig into, because one of the ways that's going to be true is that God is going to judge us on our works, our words, our works, our actions, even our thoughts, even the secrets. Now, here's an important little truth to understand. Justification is by faith. Judgment will be according to works. Justification is by faith. Judgment will be according to works. We're told in verse 2 that God's judgment is based on truth. There will be nothing unfair about it. People do do and do say and do think what God judges them for. It will not be artificial. It will not be imaginary. It will be real. It will be based on truth. Which is why, please hear me, you need to be saved by the work of Jesus on the cross. Because that means that God's judgment, this is a digression, but boy, it's an important one. God's judgment fell on Jesus, not on you. He bore your bad actions. He bore the judgment for your sins, for your uh, bad thoughts, for your dirty thoughts, for your lies, for your deceit, for your gossip, for, for your adultery. You know, whatever it is, it fell on him or it falls on you. There is a righteous judgment that cannot be avoided. God is holy and righteous. There is a serious dealing with sin and it's seriously dealt with when Jesus died on the cross, or it's seriously dealt with at the day of judgment. You decide, by God's grace, I ask you, make sure it's by your faith in Jesus you have received the justification, made righteous, that means, just as if I'd never sinned. That's what justification means, justified, just as if I'd never sinned, because I have taken, I've said, Jesus, I repent, forgive me, cleanse me, make me new, clothe me with your righteousness, and he will, and he does. He was made sin so that we might be given the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. No time to look at it. It's not on the PowerPoint. Look it up for yourself. It's a wonderful verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in Christ, in him, we might have the righteousness of God. That's the only answer to the problem. God's judgment will be just and righteous. Now, if you're uh, interested in it, and I wish I had time to explore it, some people do say, well, what about verses 7 to 10? They look as though they're about being uh, saved by works. Well, it's a very important point, which I must take two minutes to say. There is a real tension in the Bible, a real tension in the New Testament between two things. On the one hand, the absolute and only certainty that you can be only saved by faith in Jesus Christ because you can't undo the sin you've already done, let alone live pure from now on. So he had to bear your sins in his body on the cross. So we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But there is another truth in the New Testament 
that our faith in Jesus will produce real works and real change in our lives. You'll pick it up all over the place. James says quite a lot about it. You get it from Jesus in Matthew. You actually get it from Paul too in 2 Corinthians 5 again. So it's a reoccurring theme in the New Testament and it's sort of being touched on here. Remember here, Paul is only interested in judgment. He's not really talking about salvation. The fact is, all of us will have an element of being judged for our works, including us believers. There will be a sense in which how we are and what we've done will be part of the vindication of the fact we have been with the Lord and followed him. Not in the same way uh, as the judgment for pure judgment for sin, but there is a judgment seat for Christians, the judgment seat of Christ. And in a way, I think what's in verse 7 is probably a pretty good summary in an odd sort of way, but pretty good, of, of what happens when you want to follow Jesus and repent. You persist in seeking glory. What's that mean? Seeking God's glory, seeking honour, seeking his honour, seeking eternal life. You, 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 you are someone who persevere pressing on with Jesus That is evidence that you really are a real Christian. You haven't just signed a piece of paper, ticked your name somewhere. You you seek the glory of God. You you seek to honour him. You you follow Jesus. He's your Lord and your Saviour. On the other side, in this little cameo here, verse 8, the other side of the coin is self-seeking, rejecting the truth, following evil. So if you're just wrapped up in yourself, Even though you might do good deeds, you become self-seeking and proud like the religious hypocrites. That's more evidence that you're still under the wrath of God. So there's fruit of faith, which is important. Now, it's a huge subject, and it needs a whole sermon in itself. So I just give it to you, pray and think about it. But it's very important. And I think in passing, Paul is sort of laying out the fact that there's a judgment element for all of us. And actually, how we live and what we do is relevant because it either demonstrates that we never knew Jesus or it demonstrates we sincerely knew him and followed him. And this judgment, in all its forms, is impartial. The last point. This judgment is impartial. God alone is true and impartial. And he will judge everyone fairly and rightly. In every century, everyone from every century, from every continent, from every condition, from all circumstances, God will judge impartially. And it's a massive subject, but it's an interesting subject, that he will judge in the light of what people knew. It's here, clearly. Jews have the law, the Gentiles don't. But that only makes a minimal difference. In actual fact, Sin is pretty evident in both Jew and Gentile, as it happens. Pride, greed, lust, envy, those things. But actually, people are judged in the light of what they knew was the right thing to do. That is very interesting. Someone, one theologian wrote like this, the ground of judgment is is people's works. The rule of judgment is their knowledge. The ground is their work. How we behaved in the light of what we knew will be an important element in God's judgment. It isn't one size fits all. Now, this is deep, mysterious stuff, but it isn't over-binary, as we can 
understand from, from, from Scripture. Jesus talked about people being judged according to their light in Luke 12 and Matthew 11. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be saved, but it does mean that there is a, an intelligent, fair, impartial, no favoritism aspect to God's judgment. It's not blind. But let's move to my last verse. Verse 16. I want to put that up. This is a wonderful verse, and I want to finish with this. This will take place, all that I've been talking about, God's judgment, will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Thanks, Ben. Through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Here's the good news, really. It's very good news. Just listen as we finish. The central figure on judgment day is Jesus Christ. The New Testament is very clear, you get it in John 5, Matthew 7, Acts, all through the New Testament, that Jesus Christ will be the chief agent of judgment. In fact, he will be the one who does the judging. So the Lord Jesus is not only our saviour and our friend, he will also be our judge. Now in one way, in big way, this is very, very reassuring and encouraging. Because it means, first of all, it's absolutely fair. Jesus knows what it is to be a human being. He knows what it is to live down here in a sin-sick world. And the judgment of all will be in the hands of one who knows what it is to live on this earth as a man. The other thing is, Jesus will really know whether you know him and love him and follow him. Because it's him you love and follow. <laughs> so he's your friend and saviour. One day, you're judge. But here's the sobering bit for all of us, really. At this moment in time, right here today, 15th of September, 11.20, when John should stop, at this moment in time, <laughs> Jesus is your saviour and your friend. Hear me. You can know Jesus as your saviour and friend now. One day, either your own death or God's calling time on this world, you will face Jesus as your judge. And he will know what you knew. And you will know he knows. I say to you with all my heart, if you don't own Jesus as your Lord and Saviour today, please don't hesitate. Bring Jesus that wonderful position he wants to be in as your saviour, your friend, your Lord. Know that your sins are forgiven. Know that the judgment is past. There is a, a judgment seat of assessing your, the authenticity of your faith. I've talked about that. But the wrath of God against your sin is past because it fell on Jesus. You will not be punished again for, what, for the punishment he took. Amen? You won't. God's fair and impartial. You won't. The judgment, the debt's been paid. You can't be asked to pay it again. Amen? Amen. Now, as we close, there is a beautiful hymn that uh, um, Billy Graham used to use at the end of his preaches. And I unashamedly think it, it just sums up how you respond. Let's put, let's put it up and just read it simple. It's this. This is how you can respond today, all of us. Today, it's as simple as this. Jesus, the Lamb of God who died for your sins, just as I am without one plea, 
but that thy blood, this is addressed to Jesus, was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Next one. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fighting and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. You can come like that. It's no more complicated. Just as I am. Next one. Waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot. You can't put anything right. Don't try to. Just come and throw yourself on his mercy. I come to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot. O Lamb of God, I come. And the last one I put up, there's more verses. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. It's a great hymn for Billy Graham to use. I pray that anybody this morning who doesn't know Jesus will respond like that. And the rest of us, full of gratitude and humility. Amen.